Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. I'm here with Louis Garcia, a Pueblo fiber artist of Tiwa and Piro Heritage. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I first uh, learned of your work in the spinoff article, which is on the uh, actually in the cover of Spinoff Summer 2020 about Pueblo cotton in the American Southwest. And there is a beautiful piece of brown cotton weaving in there. Would you tell me just a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the piece is actually uh, a replica of a prehistoric Hohokam piece that comes from Vit- Ventana Cave um, in Arizona. And I was, I had the privilege of, uh, visiting the collection at the Arizona State Museum in Tucson when I was doing, actually doing research for another project, another replica project of the, um, cotton openwork shirt, the Tonto shirt commonly known as. So, uh, while we were there, we were able to look at some of the other um, textiles and this shirt uh, or this uh, poncho, as it's uh, commonly referred to as, uh, was one of the pieces. And it was something that I had always that I was very familiar with in terms of um, the literature. It's it's commonly um, published in a lot of the um, books or the few books dealing with Pueblo textiles. and. Um, so I was very familiar with the piece from the literature, um, but I and I was always fascinated by it because I had never I was not familiar um, with the technique. So when I had the opportunity to actually um, look at the piece closely and even warps and wefts and look at the the spin, the gerst of the spin and whatnot, um, <clears throat> I was just awestruck and inspired, and um, it it automatically uh, went on my bucket list to get to at some point. And um, so after we finished the um, Sprang open work shirt replica, um, that was a, a, a joint project between myself and a, another artist um, by the name of Carol James, who's actually um, a teacher of Sprang. And so um, we our collaboration on that project, when that was completed, that's when I um, decided that I wanted to experiment more with um, other prehistoric techniques that weren't commonly practiced or that were forgotten with time. And um, that's how I, how I came to do that piece. And I wanted to, I had just returned from a trip to Oaxaca where we got to um, visit some uh, Mixtec weaving communities along the coast. And so um, that's where, I, we were able to um, observe the women there um, spinning, um, beating uh, cotton, the coyuche, the natural brown cotton, and spinning it with the traditional uh, support, malacate spindle. And so um, that had just really inspired me, and I was really, I fell in love with the natural brown, the natural colored cotton. And so I really wanted to make a unique piece. Um, the original piece of the 
the uh, uh, weft wrap open work um, piece replica that I did that's pictured on the uh, summer issue was actually done in white cotton. Um, but I just really loved the um, natural brown and I wanted to do a do a piece. And I had a bunch of um, balls of already spun cotton that I had already spun. So I decided to, to use natural brown cotton to um, make that replica. And so that's what I did. And I was very happy with the final result. <laughs> it's absolutely beautiful. It's interesting that you have these uh, replica projects. Um, what is it that makes you want to not only, you know, spin and weave cotton, but to follow so closely the work um, that's in these archaeological pieces? Um, that's a really great question. And I, and I, um, as a student, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pueblo weaver. Um, and I have been for most of my life, my grandfather, um, I learned the basics from my grandfather and I kind of just, um, took it from there. Um, I would say for the most part, I'm pretty much self-taught. I, I study, um, textiles in our family collection, um, that we use for ceremonial use. I, um, then started expanding to study um, both um, public and private collections. So local museums and um, private collections of um, art collectors and so on and so forth that are gracious enough to allow me to into their collections to study them. Um, as I started um, branching out and studying um, historic collections of Pueblo textiles, I it's, it, it just became a breadcrumb trail for me. And I started um, wanting to reach further and further back um, because one of the things that collectors um, pay very close attention to is the relative age of the, the textiles. Um, because as collectors, they know that the, um, there's um, more value attached to the older textiles. And for me, um, it's not so much the value that I was interested in, but the the continuity of um, techniques and textiles. And so, um, of course, as we all know, over time, um, uh, materials change in terms of textiles, techniques um, of spinning, for example, change, um, where you know, many of the older textiles are are hand spun cotton versus um, commercial commercially um, spun cotton twine um, hand naturally dyed uh, fibers versus commercially aniline dyes um, lots of those kinds of things um, but as I reached further and further back, um, I was actually um, commissioned by a local museum, the Albuquerque Museum here in um, Albuquerque. I was commissioned to do a piece for a, um, a Tiwa Pueblo leader um, at the time of contact. And so I had a pretty good concept, a good handle on the historic Pueblo textiles post-contact, but I wasn't too familiar with um, the archaeology and the specifics of pre-contact Textiles. I mean, I had a general idea, but I wanted to get it right. And I wanted to um, get in touch with the experts in the field, the archaeologists that definitely knew 
um, what or know about the prehistoric textiles. So that uh, put me in contact. That kind of put me in contact with an archaeologist by the name of Lori Webster, um, who lives in uh, up in Colorado, just on the doorstep of Mesa Verde um, ruins out that way. And um, so her and I started um, communicating, and and uh, we we met up here in Albuquerque. And I shared with her um, my project, the project that I had been asked to um, complete. And of course, she shared with me um, her work over the years with um, Pueblo Textiles. And, um, you know, one thing led to another. She shared her information with me, which definitely informed my, um, the, the commission piece that I completed. And it, it catapulted me into a whole other direction to um, study in earnest um, the prehistoric um, Pueblo um, textiles. Um, and she actually invited me to join her research committee on a project that she was initiating at that time called the um, Cedar, Mesa, Cedar Mesa Perishables Project. And in that project, we, are, we were tasked with um, documenting um, perishable material that came from the southeastern Utah area primarily, but generally the Four Corners region um, in the various institutions where these collections now uh, are stored. And um, so over the summer, because I'm, I'm a, a teacher by trade, that's my profession, I'm an educator, um, so, but I had summers available to go and uh, visit these museums with her and our research team and go through, and basically it was just going through drawer by drawer and looking at um, the material, the artifacts that are in the drawer and um, identifying materials, looking at techniques. And I was actually brought on as a cultural consultant along with uh, my colleague, Chris Lewis, uh, from the Pueblo of Zuni to consult on the um, weaving aspects and, and Chris's area of expertise was is basketry and yucca work, working with um, yucca um, material. And so um, we were looking at everything from wooden tools, implements, bone awls, um, of course, textile and textile fragments, um, yucca rope and cordage, um, plated basketry, plated sandals, twine sandals, a whole gamut of material and techniques that we were looking at and identifying and photographing, uh, which will be compiled in a catalog and made available um, via internet to anyone who wants to access them. So that's how I got into um, studying more of the prehistoric because it was an important connection for me as um, a, a Pueblo individual um, of course, as Pueblo people, we maintain a very strong connection with our ancestral past, and it's a part of our everyday life for us. Um, we carry our ancestors with us every time we um, sit down to a meal. We put food aside for them. Um, every time the sun comes up in the morning, we go out and offer cornmeal and um, greet the sun and and acknowledge our ancestors um, that, you know, have, um, that 
have gone before us. And so we acknowledge them. So it's a very important aspect of who we are as um, Pueblo people. It's interesting that you talk about the, the Cedar Mesa Perishables Project and having to, to, to work to understand these, um, these pieces that would have probably disintegrated elsewhere. Um, in a way, the, the knowledge that you're sort of recreating is, is perishable in its own way. It requires effort to, to continue it and keep it moving forward. And you do, um, you do teach other weavers, is that right? That's correct. Um, and I think it, it mentioned that uh, you're you're part of a, a guild and you're involved in you know helping other people maintain these traditions. How did you become involved in that? Not not only um, weaving for yourself, but in you know sharing that with other other weavers. Well, um, for us as as um, Pueblo people, knowledge, traditional knowledge, is. Um, something that has a great deal of value. And oftentimes um, there is um, the knowledge is um, not, it's not like Western culture where uh, it's kind of a right to know. Everyone has a right to know kind of um, concept. Um, in Pueblo culture, their uh, knowledge is is respected and um, th- there are th- there are uh, cases where um, knowledge is only for certain groups or individuals, and that's something um, that that's respected um, and acknowledged. It's part of the culture. Um, we don't ask questions if if the information if we're not privy to certain information, we don't um, prod and um, ask ask questions because if we're meant to to know then um, we, we will be taught and we'll 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 learn uh, what we need to know um, but for me in terms of you know a, a traditional um, pueblo artist a traditional uh, traditional pueblo weaver um, I see I take that as a responsibility because we are in essence, at the service of our community and the larger Pueblo community, because we're providing, we're producing textiles and clothing that is are very important for ceremonial use. So we're often um, seeked out by individuals who need certain items for various ceremonies because there are uh, not very many of us of weavers, traditional weavers who are producing these textiles. And um, so because that number is, is so small, um, I saw a need for creating a means to share knowledge in a safe space among Pueblo individuals, uh, amongst each other, to uh, revitalize and cultivate this this traditional knowledge that um, was being lost and rarely practiced um, techniques, for example. So um, that's what kind of led me to um, creating the Pueblo Fiber Arts Guild here in New Mexico um, because of that need. 
And um, it actually uh, came out of um, some classes that I was doing at the Indian Pueblo Cultural Center here in Albuquerque with Pueblo individuals. Um, we were kind of brainstorming ideas of how we can, you know, um, create a group or a space, a safe space for us to gather and share ideas and uh, share techniques in history and share our work and work together as, as weavers because um, traditionally um, all of the fiber Pueblo fiber arts activities are were essentially um, social activities that reinforced um, family and clan connections and uh, reinforced the relationships within the community um, as it did long ago and his, historically and prehistorically. So um, that's how we decided to create the guild. And one of the, the needs that we saw was um, to create a marketplace because um, here in New Mexico, well, New Mexico is pretty famous for um, Indian market, which is one of the largest, if not the largest um, Indian art market um, in the world. And um, so New Mexico has a lot of fame for that. But we uh, we know that over the years, um, there are very few, maybe just a handful, if that, of um, Pueblo fiber artists and Pueblo weavers who are producing uh, material for um, that venue. So um, we realized that because um, most of the market for Pueblo textiles is uh, essentially Pueblo for use within uh, we also know that there is a growing interest in um, collectors of Pueblo textiles. So we wanted to create a show, a unique show by um, Pueblo people for Pueblo people to, um, to create a market and encourage the um, use of natural fibers and production of traditional um, Pueblo textiles for both the Pueblo community as well as the non-Indian community, art collectors, museums, etc. And um, so nothing like that has existed up to this point until we began going on 10 years ago now. And um, the other piece that I, I really wanted to integrate as an educator was the education piece. Um, because Pueblo textiles is, is something that, um, there's not a lot written about it. There's maybe a handful of books that touch on the subject, um, you know, as a focus. Um, so I wanted to create a space where people could come, um, both Pueblo and non-native alike to learn about Pueblo textiles. So one of the things that we encourage at our show um, is for artists to demonstrate their, their art form and or um, show uh, the materials that they use, the tools that they use, so that it becomes more of an educational experience as much as, an, as a, a high-end art show. And so that usually happens in the winter months in November so it usually kind of coincides with the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas. 
So we kind of um, pitch it as, you know, kind of like a holiday shopping kind of thing um, where people can purchase gifts and meet artists and learn about um, the Pueblo weaving tradition. So that's how that all kind of um, came together. Um, because as Pueblo artists, you know, we have a responsibility to um, to share the knowledge uh, with our, our community, with among those who, who want to learn, because we all use these textiles. It's a, we, we, we are a living culture. Um, we still practice our ceremonies and traditions, which all require these traditional textiles. So that is uh, first and foremost, um, part of our mission. Um, and then secondly, um, educating the general public about um, this ancient tradition and sharing with um, all who are interested and all who want to learn about um, this ancient tradition that is still alive in um, many of our communities. So the, the people who are involved in the show are, are probably at a fairly high level of their craft. How are people coming into this? Are, are there beginners joining your guild? Or how are people learning to spin and weave? You mentioned that you learned it as part of your family. Is that typical? Um, yes and no. In some cases, there are individuals who uh, learn uh, the basics from a, a family member um, or a community member. Um, but typically, I think more so in, in recent years, it's it's become more of more difficult for um, Pueblo individuals to access um, a teacher. Um, and even more so now with the world, uh, how it is, you know, we're all, you know, off at school in college or uh, working uh, nine to five. Uh, very few of us actually um, have the the uh, privilege of you know being able to make a living from our work because it's not um, pueblo um, weaving is not considered um, a fine art if you will like um, painting or maybe um, pueblo pottery or jewelry um, because it's such a very small um, audience if you will. Um, and so the, um, idea there is that, um, the most, since most of the production of the textiles is for internal use within our communities, it's, um, more difficult. And there are uh, many different, um, layers to that because some artists are reluctant to share um, especially with individuals from not from their home community. And that, like I said, goes back from what I mentioned at the very beginning um, to that idea that knowledge is is highly valued and respected. And so a lot of times um, different individuals, different communities have go by different rules as to what can be shared and with whom. Um, so we constantly have that at the forefront of, um, uh, you know, how we decide what to share with what, which audiences. 
And um, because we have a responsibility, you know, I have to answer to my community and I have to answer to my elders about uh, anything that I publish, anything that I share within my classes. And um, I'm often um, respectfully questioned by members of the Pueblo Weaving community and those individuals that I um, highly respect because many of these individuals have um, made uh, the Pueblo weaving their lifestyle. And I think that is the highest um, form that uh, a, a, a Pueblo weaving can take because that is um, traditionally how uh, weavers uh, within the community, just like potters or people who focus on making jewelry, each uh, craft, if, if you will, um, had its niche. And each of those craftsmen or craftswomen had an important role within the community to provide the, the products and the materials that were needed for use within the community. So it's not this idea of me as an individual artist I have to answer and I have a responsibility to the larger, uh, to my own community, as well as the larger Pueblo community. And that's something um, that I take very seriously. So Pueblo individuals who approach me and ask ask if I would be willing to um, teach them, really what it comes down to is, you know, if I have the time, because as an educator, it's very difficult um, to carve out time to work. And as we, as fiber artists, we know that spinning and weaving and dyeing uh, is it's time consuming and you have to dedicate time and carve out time um, to, to be able to practice your, your, your art form. And so that's always the tricky part. And so what I've been able to, um, to, to do is to offer classes in the summer. I usually offer uh, uh, about a month long class. We meet, may, uh, you know, maybe for about a week, uh, a full day, or we'll split up the meetings. And, uh, you know, I've been able to, I've been fortunate to, you know, um, be provided um, funding and the means to be able to offer these classes through various organizations, nonprofits, um, the New Mexico Arts uh, Organization has been a big supporter of um, supporting uh, traditional apprenticeships for individuals who want to um, learn from a mentor, from a master artist in the field. Um, various museums the, uh, have, have gotten behind um, providing uh, venues for offering um, these sorts of classes. Um, and it's been both. I've had classes open to the general public, um, and I've had classes with groups of, uh, exclusively Pueblo individuals. And, um, so it's all about, um, you know, sharing within the context and the, um, the, uh, the spirit of sharing human knowledge because, Fiber arts and weaving is a human activity uh, over history and across cultures. And so my open classes, uh, my mixed classes, um, 
open to non-natives are really approach it from that perspective and kind of give a very, uh, very um, brief overview of that history, but I don't delve too much into the deeper meanings behind um, our textiles as I would in uh, a Pueblo, a Pueblo class. And so that's just in keeping with the various levels of knowledge um, within the, um, within our traditions, Pueblo traditions. Well, that's interesting. Cause one of the things I noticed about, uh, the child's poncho that you wove is that at the same time that you're being aware of and, and recording the traditional Pueblo techniques, you also made the choice to use a tool and cotton. Uh, I think you said it was Mishtek Malacate spindle. Mm-hmm. So you have things coming in from, from, from different traditions at the same time that you're very much working within the Pueblo tradition. That's right. And actually, um, I think I, I um, addressed that point in my article because as Pueblo people, we all have oral histories of how our communities came to be. And so... Um, generally speaking, we all have um, migration stories about where our people um, originated and um, places that they've um, visited throughout. And so we know that our ancestors um, were instructed to um, travel across the landscape and settle across the landscape and leave uh, evidence or in essence mark the places where we have been with evidence of our occupancy through leaving behind artifacts such as broken pottery, um, arrowheads, petroglyphs, uh, dwellings, um, all of the all of the the pieces of um, of our culture. And, and so we know that some, a part of that history talks about individuals or groups, um, that visited the South and, uh, may have come from the South or originated in the South. And when I say the South, I'm talking about, um, Mexico and Mesoamerica. And so, we know through our oral, oral tradition that um, various um, traditions, art forms, and even ceremonies come directly from the South. And even still today, in modern Pueblo culture, we still use seashells, which come from the Gulf of Mexico and uh, the western coast of um, California, Baja such as um, the spondyla or spiny oyster shells, the olivella shells that come from very specific places, not from the Southwest. Um, materials such as cotton was introduced from Mesoamerica around 600 AD. Um, tech- so we do know that certain technologies such as textiles and uh, pottery, for example, are two examples um, come directly from Mesoamerica. And so we know through our oral uh, histories and traditions that these two specific um, 
traditions come from the South. And so we, we recognize um, those and acknowledge those and respect those traditions because they've been integrated and become very vital components of our uh, Pueblo culture today. And so those of us who have the opportunities um, and the ability to communicate with indigenous individuals of Mexico um, are able to go down and converse and communicate and visit communities, which is what I do because my wife is actually um, Nahua from the state of uh, Morelos in Mexico, which is central Mexico. So every year, uh, my family and I go down to visit the family. And while we're down there, I'll often uh, travel. Me and my wife will go and travel and visit other uh, indigenous weaving communities from various um, linguistic groups, from Nahua to uh, Tepewa to Otomi, so various different groups. And so as someone who's even... Um, uh, slightly familiar with um, indigenous cultures of Mexico, th- uh, there are about 62 indigenous language groups uh, currently in Mexico today. Um, and many of those um, groups, uh, of course, still maintain their language, culture, and traditions. And um, some of them even maintain their, their prehistoric weaving traditions. And um, so the the Mixtec of the coast of Oaxaca down in southern Mexico, southernmost Mexico, are still growing natural colored cotton and spinning and preparing the cotton in the same manner that cotton was prepared for spinning in the ancestral Pueblo period, but has since um, been forgotten to history. But we do know through archaeological evidence that um cotton beading wands have been found archaeologically that suggest that cotton was prepared in the same way that I was able to witness firsthand in this Mixtec community in Oaxaca, Mexico today. And so for me, that was a huge um, eye-opener and connector and just kind of totally reinforced um, that connection and that and that oral history that we know as Pueblo people um, of that connection, and I don't I don't know um, you know what is more gratifying and um, to to be able to see that tradition still alive and uh, a viable um, life way still today in indigenous community. And so for me, that's a, that's a great source of imp- inspiration. And um, so something that, you know, if I can bring a piece of that back and reintroduce it into uh, to the Pueblo weaving community, then um, that is what, what I will do. And so uh, publishing um, this article through Spinoff, was one of the ways that I'm, I'm reaching a larger audience and kind of sharing uh, some of that history with the larger audience to, to appreciate and, and know about it. Because like I said, there are very few um, books that are out there and even less material um, that is um, written by a, from a Pueblo perspective by Pueblo, a Pueblo person. In fact, um, this article is probably one of the, the only articles that I'm aware of that's written um, from a Pueblo perspective and not 
an outsider perspective looking in. So let's talk about cotton. You mentioned that you um, grow several kinds of cotton. Are you unusual in doing that? Or um, I think you mentioned that had sort of stopped being grown where you are. Yes. What made you decide to start growing cotton again? Um, that's a that's an important question. And it's kind of at the center of a lot of the work that I do. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it was part of the breadcrumb trail for me um, when I started you know, like most Pueblo weavers, I started learning with, um, you know, acrylic red heart, um, yarn and, uh, you know, race spinning that and, you know, soaking it, going through the process and, uh, rolling it into a ball before we warp and weave. Um, I had never worked with wool before and, uh, never worked with anything other than commercial cotton for some of the other projects. And so when I learned about the importance of, of cotton, uh, of course, cotton, raw cotton is still used in many of our Pueblo communities today for ceremonial use, um, uses, um, especially during the winter months. But for us as Pueblo people, the cotton um, represents rain clouds and our ancestors, because in essence, we believe our our ancestors return as rain clouds to bring the moisture to the people so that we have a crop and, and food. And so it's, it's, it's very much a cyclical um, pattern that um, we, we, the way we um, perceive it. And um, so that being said, there's a, a very big significance and importance put on cotton and it's something that we still use. Uh, but no one was no one that I knew of at the time was growing cotton, uh, growing their own cotton and processing their own cotton, and much less using the cotton that they grow and spun for weaving anymore because it was uh, 99.9% of the Pueblo weavers today are using commercial cotton twine and um, acrylic yarns. And so as I started, um, you know, learning more and studying collections and learning more about the tools and the processes um, that were used prehistorically, of course, it was a a natural um, thing for me to explore those areas and integrate those um, techniques and processes into my own practice as a Pueblo fiber artist. Because for me, uh, doing my work um, and following in the steps of my ancestors uh, is very gratifying, and I feel uh, uh, a much closer connection with my ancestors by taking these steps. I feel like I'm uh, following the footsteps of my ancestors when I'm planting the cotton. When, uh, as as uh, Pueblo people are an agricultural people, and so planting is a very important aspect of our traditional culture. And so there is there are certain protocols and certain. Um, things that go along with planting. It's not just throwing seeds in the ground and watering them and, you know, weeding them. It's, it's very much uh, a spiritual process. It's um, uh, there's a deeper connection there. We offer prayers um, from the time that we plant, even selecting the seeds before we plant. Um, There are prayers that, and songs that we offer to the seeds before planting, during planting uh, as the plants are sprouting, as they're growing, um, there are things that um, take place um, through the whole process from even harvesting and preparing the cotton. There, there are certain prayers and songs that go along with that. And um, so 
as I as I started learning, um, I first started um, planting our um, Pueblo short staple cotton, and uh, I grew um, several crops of that. Not I don't have a huge area. I just uh, cleaned out a, a small plot, maybe. 15 feet by 15 feet in my backyard uh, here. I live here in the uh, city of Albuquerque and um, planted that. And that was, you know, gave me plenty of material to work with. And I'm still using much of that material that I first started planting several years ago now. And um, I share it with uh, Pueblo uh, individuals, uh, religious leaders in various villages and, um, uh, you know, free of charge or will trade for certain items. And, you know, they have uh, raw Pueblo cotton that they can use um, that was grown by a Pueblo as opposed to uh, commercially ginned and commercially grown and harvested um, cotton, which is very, very different from, um, you know, cotton that we grow ourselves. Uh, it's a very different quality Um and, you know, in the Pueblo way of, you know, hand processing, hand growing and hand processing everything, it's, it's, it's a very different end product. Um, the, the fiber is, is, is amazing to work with. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of investment up front in uh, cultivating, preparing it, you know, all the prayers that go along with it um, to create the material. It's, it's a, a, a joy to work with and um, to produce. But it takes a, a large commitment, <laughs> and um, not everyone, you know, has that that sort of um, time and uh, resources or space even available to do that. So, but most of us in the pueblos, I'm often asked uh, for seeds if I would share seeds, and any pueblo individual who asks me for seeds, I always give them, you know, a baggie, a ziploc baggie full of seeds, which is plenty to plant a whole field. Um, because the more of us that are planting our ancestral seeds, um, the better, the more we have, the merrier. So um, slowly I see through, through as a direct impact of my work that more people are becoming aware, of, more of our own Pueblo people are becoming aware of the importance and um, of that and, you know, sharing and exchanging seeds uh, was a very important piece. So as so on the flip side of that, as a fiber artist in general, uh, and of course, uh, a cotton enthusiast, of course, color cotton, how could you not? Um, so that was my uh, one of one of my muses at the time was to uh, explore colored cotton and work with colored cotton and when I started um, learning more about the uh, some of the, the living traditions today, some of the uh, indigenous groups from the coast, uh, the southern coast of Mexico, uh, growing, you know, natural green and natural brown colored cottons. Of course, the beautiful textiles that they produce with them was just awe-inspiring as, as a fiber artist first, second, as, a, as, a, as an indigenous fiber artist, and third, as a Pueblo fiber artist um, was just so beautiful that um, there are still indigenous people cultivating their ancestral crops um, and, and being able to apply that technology and that art form to make a living uh, today in 
today's modern society and globalization and everything that our indigenous communities are up against because uh, one of the things that we um, discovered when we took, we recently took a cohort of indigenous, of Pueblo weavers down to Oaxaca, Mexico as a part of a a traditional technologies um, uh, project um, led by um, a group of um, archaeologists. Um, It was this cultural exchange where we had indigenous Pueblo weavers and Mixtec weavers who are living their fiber art tradition as a, as a way of life and selling their, their artwork and their natural dye work from the caracol purpura, the, the natural um, mollusk purple dye, the use of cochineal, the use of indigo, um, hand spinning, natural colored cotton, so on and so forth. Just being immersed in the community and seeing these women sit in their traditional posahuanco, which is their traditional woven skirt, um, on the floor spinning their malacate in a in a half gourd, um, living and practicing this tradition in a modern day, it, it was just like as if we were transported back a thousand years ago in our own community where... Um, men, women, and children in our own communities would have been involved in some aspect of the the fiber arts production. Um, it was very, very um, a very powerful experience for many of us, and I wanted to to bring a little piece of that back. And so, the replica piece that I published that was published in Spinoff was um, a product of that experience. So you mentioned that a lot of the uh, Pueblo weavers are currently using, you know, commercial yarns in one way or another. Um, was learning to spin just part of your weaving education or or is that something that you had to seek out separately? Both. Um, I would say that um, I learned to spin on a traditional spindle because part of Weaving the belts, our traditional belts, even though we're using commercial acrylic yarn, synthetic yarn, we still have to re-spin the yarn um, so that it can uh, hold up against the natural felting of, you know, changing the shed in a warp-faced weave. So, you know, I had a very basic understanding of um, spinning but I had never actually, for many years, I had never actually um, spun uh, raw fiber, much less grown or produced my own fiber. Um, so that was something that was along the breadcrumb trail for me. And um, so I actually did um, take a class, an introductory class in spinning at one of the local yarn shops here in town. And that gave me a really uh good base and kind of uh, I was able to get my feet wet, if you will, with um, different um, spinning uh, tools from uh, hand spindles, um, support spindles, drop spindles. um, And then with, of course, with uh, graduating on up to um, different wheels, different types of wheels and um, different types of fibers, everything from wool to cotton and even silk. And 
So we, so we got to experiment with and get our hands into all of these different fibers and experiment with different um, spinning techniques and um, learn about all that. But it was just enough to give me that a taste and, and to, to kind of ignite that curiosity and that passion. And I just took it from there. And that was maybe, uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago now. Um, when, when, when I, uh, experienced that and it was, it was just a very, um, uh, eye-opening experience for me. And I just kind of felt like the doors to spinning were open to me. And so I, I walked right in <laughs> and, um, took it from there. And I think that that's a very, um, common experience for many of us in the fiber arts world, uh, where you just have that one experience or that one workshop or that one person that you know in your fiber arts circle that kind of shares something with you and it just ignites a curiosity and a passion and you just want to explore it and explore it. And so that's how it was for me. And uh, once, you know, I had that basic uh, understanding of spinning and the different tools and how they're used, um, then that, you know, of course, um, you know, I would go back to the literature and when we would go visit the collections, I would carefully examine the the wear marks on certain tools such as weaving battens or the spindles that were used um, because interestingly um, the prehistoric pueblo spindles that we see in the prehistoric collections are almost identical to the type of spindles that we see being used down in mesoamerica and um, that is not surprisingly given the our understanding through our oral traditions of how weaving um, came up came to be in the southwest and um, so since then um, the spindle has changed uh, to the type of spindle that was used pre uh, in the historic times uh, around the time of contact and thereafter um, so there was definitely a shift in in the the fiber that was being spun from very short staple cotton to wool, which was introduced by the Spanish at the time of contact. And of course, wool, as we all know, um, is a, has a much larger, lo- longer staple. is a com- is a protein fiber, very different from a, a cellulose fiber, and um, it just behaves differently. So I think that the there are links. We have everything from the very long type of malacate with the whirl uh, closer to the bottom, more adjusted to spinning the long fibers of wool. And then we have the, the, the middle or the link, if you will. I like to call it the link because um, what's commonly known as the Hopi type spindle um, has a much uh, narrower shaft and the whirl is much closer to the center as opposed to the bottom. Uh, top center uh, for which was very versatile and could be used to spin either cotton or wool so it was like that transitionary period but prior to contact the spindles looked very different and so the pieces of the puzzles just started coming together and given my um, at the time basic understanding of the history and my newfound understanding of the mechanics of spinning uh, tools and how they were 
adapted for specific fibers, um, I was able to put the pieces of the puzzle together and be able to interpret uh, various uh, wear patterns in some of those tools. And um, it was just beautiful to be able to um, to put the pieces of the puzzle together and, and paint a picture and interpret the tools and the material um, so that people could have a greater understanding and appreciation for that, um, that history and that art form. So we've talked a lot about um, things that you've learned from all sorts of different, different sources. What are you uh, looking forward to learning next? Um, for me, it's always been about a continual process. Um, many times, uh, others will refer to me as, um, a master weaver or a master spinner. Um, but for me, uh, I, I don't consider myself a master. I consider myself, um, you know, I def uh, spinning and weaving and fiber arts is definitely my, one of my passions. But I'm always learning. I'm always continuously learning, and there's always so much more to learn. Um, I, I I really and truly enjoy, and I'm at at my my center when I'm spinning fiber or when I'm at my loom because everything else like goes away and I'm transported back and it's just me and my loom and this creative energy that's being, that's, that's happening in front of me as I'm, as I'm working on a piece and, and putting my, my living breath and my prayers into those pieces to be able to be used in the ceremonial. So I'm essentially breathing life into my work so that it will be able to fulfill its, uh, its purpose in our communities. And um, so it's, it's a constant learning um, process and that includes, you know, knowledge comes with a great deal of responsibility and uh, an obligation to share that knowledge with, uh, within our, our, our Pueblo communities. Um, because, our ancestors um, practiced these traditions as, you know, to fulfill a, a, a specific need and a purpose. And so many of those traditions were lost over time. And when I completed this, uh, the piece that's on the cover of Spinoff, the summer issue, um, and I shared it with my mentor, Lori Webster, who's the archaeologist and um, Southwest Perishables expert. She looked at it and her eyes got big and she said, Louis, she says this, she says it's probably been over a, at least a thousand years before since anyone has woven a piece like this. And so for me, that that is really at the center of what... Uh, why I do what I do. And the research, research is a very important part of that because there's no one around today who could have sat down with me and taught me that technique. But being able to, to see the piece in the museum 
and petition it and ask for permission from the peace to be my teacher, then that's what allowed me to be able to bring that back to life, if you will. And so it's it's very much, uh, you know, a, a responsibility. It's not, you know, it's not about, you know, bragging rights. It's not about money. It's not about, for me, it's that that connection with our my ancestral past that really um, f- feeds me and gives me a great deal of gratification that I'm able to pay my respects and pay homage to the beautiful artistry and the knowledge base of our ancestors and be able to share even just a small snippet, a small piece, a small fragment of the, the, the ancestral knowledge that, um, that our ancestors, um, carried, created and carried, um, is, is really gratifying for me. So I see uh, in my future um, more research, more replicas, because that's how I'm able to converse with my ancestors. And so for me, that is that will probably be um, my work until my time is done on this earth. Thank you so much, Louis, for your, for, for your time this morning and also for your, sharing your beautiful work with us. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.